Let's explore God's word. Second Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter eleven and twelve. We're going to be in this. We've been. We're finishing today this sermon series. It's called the Hall of Flaw, and we've been looking at Hebrews eleven. And there, are, there's this list of of heroes of the faith, and they had they did amazing things for the Lord. And sometimes we call it the Hall of Fame, but I think a better way to describe it is the Hall of Flaw, because every one of these characters. They have stories of failure, stories of flaw, and ways that God worked in spite of them. And today we're going to be looking at probably the most prominent story of failure in this entire list of people in Hebrews 11, the one whose failure is most on display in the story of the Bible. And you're probably way ahead of me. It's King David. If you know the story of the people of God, you know that David was a pretty important guy, did some amazing things for the Lord. But there are several episodes of failure in his life. In fact, if you were to come up with a hashtag for uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, uh, you would hashtag that epic failure. Hashtag epic failure. It's interesting that social media has given us this mechanism where we organize posts and articles and pictures. You can search hashtag epic failure, and you can see all kinds of pictures of people doing belly flops off of diving boards or wrecking their mountain bike or tripping as they're walking on the sidewalk. Like, there's all kinds of, uh, of ways that we can see how people fail in everyday normal life. And uh, I just want to say I'm thankful that my failure as a student is not recorded on the World Wide Web and is not recorded in, in social media. I think about all the dumb things I did growing up, and I'm so glad someone wasn't there with a you know, camera to video it and to post it. There are so many things in my life that would have been hashtagged epic failure. Um, and that's also if you're a young person and you're living in this new reality of social media, just, just be, be careful about what you post out there. Um, it tends to live for a long time out there uh, on the internet. And, um, but King David didn't have social media, but his life was in the spotlight and, and, and there's an episode in his life that's recorded for us that we can learn from. And so it's over in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I don't want to take anything away from what makes David great. You know, one of the major covenants of the Old Testament is the Davidic covenant. It's this kingly promise that, that God makes to David and his descendants. And through this covenant, we are introduced to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So I don't want to take anything away from what God does through David. He was certainly a, a great person of faith, but here's an episode where he was, wasn't such a great person of faith, and we can learn from that. So we're introduced to, so the story starts pretty auspiciously. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. So there's several things going on right here that the narrator is trying to tell us that something bad is about to happen. It's, the narrator is also putting David in a not-so-nice light. In the spring, 
when kings wage military campaigns, when the conditions are right for kings to go out and do what kings are supposed to do. They're supposed to secure borders or they're supposed to enlarge territory. They're supposed to protect the marginalized from invaders and people who are stealing crops. And kings are supposed to go out and they're supposed to wage war and they're supposed to be strategic and they're supposed to advance the, 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 you know, the, the initiatives of the kingdom and to protect the kingdom. This is what kings do. This is why we wanted a king in the first place. This is spring. This is when kings do that. But what's David doing? He's not doing that at all. He is hanging out in the palace. He's living a life of luxury, you might say. And he's sending other people to go out and do what he should be doing. And so David failed in his responsibility as king, first of all. The first epic failure is his just failure as a king. You know, this is not what you're supposed to be doing, David. And as David is in this environment where he's not doing what his vocation directs him to do, an opportunity for sin presents itself. And so from this vantage point of, of where King David lived, he can see all of Jerusalem. And not too far away, he sees a woman coming up to the roof of her home, and she begins to engage in a ceremonial cleansing process. And so she's purifying herself. She's washing her body in what's called a mikvah. And, and, and we sort of read this story without knowing what's going on. We're like, oh my gosh, how obscene of her to you know, go and take a bath on the roof of her house. But what she's doing in this mikvah is she is engaging in a, a rite of worship. She is ceremonially cleansing herself to prepare herself to go to the temple. Essentially, this woman, her name's Bathsheba, she's getting ready to go to church. She's getting ready to be a faithful follower of God. And this is what it means to be a faithful follower of God at this time, as you go into the mikvah and you, you ceremonially cleanse yourself. And so we can't read any culpability on Bathsheba's part at all. She's doing what faithful women of that time do. And she's described to us not only by her name, but she's described to us in, in two ways. The daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba is described to us by the men she is in relationship with. Her father is Eliam, her husband is Uriah, and guess what man is not in that list? David. David is not in that list. David is not in relationship with Bathsheba. But David sees something that he wants. David sees something that he wants. And he, as king, has the power to take what he wants. And so he sends a messenger to Bathsheba's home, and I want you to know something about this messenger that goes and sends for Bathsheba, or goes to get Bathsheba. It was not as if he showed up on the door and said, Hi, I'm from the king. I have a note from the king. And, you know, Bathsheba, like, opens the note, and it says, Hi, I'm David. Do you like me? Check yes, check no. And if Bathsheba checks no, the messenger goes back and tells the king that Bathsheba said no. And then David says, Oh, okay, cool. I just thought I'd throw that out there and see where it would go. No, like, he is using all of his power, all of his influence as king to coerce Bathsheba into his home because he wanted her. 
And so this is an example of someone using their power over someone for the purposes of sexual exploitation and abuse. Now, we're familiar with that, too. That has a hashtag, right? The hashtag MeToo movement. And, and that whole injustice has been exposed here in, in recent years. But before we finally expose that abuse in our society through the, the hashtag MeToo movement, before that even happened, the writer of 2 Samuel was exposing this abuse. Because everything about this story is saying that what David did was wrong. The first people to expose the abuse of power against vulnerable women, it was not a group of activists that hashed a movement. It was the people of God saying, this is not the way kings are supposed to behave. And the reason activists are bringing more light to that issue than the church is because we haven't read our story very well. If we will read our story well, and if we will understand what is going on here, we will see that this kind of abuse of power is not right. And the Bible goes to great detail to show how David abused his power and how it was contrary to God's plan for men and women. So we need to do a better job of, of telling our story, and so that's what we're going to try to do today. So David abuses his power. He brings Bathsheba into his home, and he commits adultery with her. She really has no option in this at all. And a few days later, she sends to King David to say, by the way, I'm pregnant, and my husband's been off fighting your war, and I'm 100% certain this is your baby. And so now David has a crisis on his hands. And so David does what kings do. They manage crises all the time. And so he says, I got a plan. I got power. I know how to fix this. And so he invites Uriah back and says, Uriah, you're such a good soldier. You're fighting so well. I want you to come spend some time with your wife. You need some R&R. You deserve it, man. So Uriah comes home from the battle, and he's there with his wife. And the first night he's there, he just something doesn't feel right. You know, the plan is for Bathsheba and Uriah to, to come together, and uh, then we'll be able to say, well, hey, this is Uriah's baby. That's kind of what David is thinking. But Uriah's at his house. He said, you know, hon, this doesn't feel right. I'm glad to be here, but my men are out there suffering. They're out there fighting the war. I'm sleeping outside. He sleeps outside. And David gets wind of this and says, okay, okay, we have, we have other things we can do. We're going to have a banquet. I'm going to invite Uriah to the banquet and Bathsheba to the banquet. And so they have a banquet, and Uriah, David has one purpose. I need to get Uriah so drunk that he loses this Boy Scout integrity that he has, and he actually sleeps with his wife and uh, stops thinking about people that don't have the same privileges as, as, as that he does. And so I, I need... Uriah in a, a foggy state so that he can somehow, um, you know, take care of this for me. And even, after, even inebriated, Uriah goes home and just, hey, this doesn't feel right, I'm going to sleep outside again. And what the writer of Second Samuel said, the narrator is saying to us, look at Uriah, even in an inebriated state, he has more integrity at this particular juncture than King David. 
So the plan fails. And David says, well, I didn't want to have to resort to this, but I have one more more lever I can pull. And so he sends to Joab, and he says, hey, send them into battle. When the fighting is the most fierce, bring the soldiers back so that only Uriah is there fighting the, the horde of the enemy that's coming in upon our line. And Joab complies with that. The soldiers comply with that. And of course, Uriah is killed. Word that of Uriah's death comes to Jerusalem. Bathsheba enters into a season of mourning. And once this prescribed time of mourning is over, which was seven days, hey, you've had seven days to get over your husband that I've killed. Now I'm bringing you into the royal harem and Bathsheba becomes one of King David's wives. It's learned that Bathsheba is pregnant. Well, of course Bathsheba is pregnant. She's part of the royal harem now. And everything seems to be okay. And we see another picture of failure. King David, he failed in his responsibility as king, but we see him here failing in his relationships with others. And what's the core what is, it, what is the core definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? We are in love with God. We love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. We treat other people the way that we want to be treated. And nothing about David's actions here reflect this law of love that Christians are bound to. I mean, when you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you have been arrested by this story. You've been, a claim has been made upon your life that you will treat other people the way you want to be treated. You will love others the way God has loved you. And David has completely violated that, completely violated that based on his selfishness. And he's taken what he wants. And so in the the wake of this, in the wake of this, God raises up a prophet. And the prophet's name is Nathan. In all these stories in the Old Testament, every time kings get out ahead of their skis, when they get out further than they should, God raises up these pesky prophets. And these prophets go into these situations and, and they do something that's not fun for any prophet. They, they speak truth to power. And so Nathan has a very precarious assignment to go into King David's court, and to deliver a message from the Lord. Now, let me say something about what, what Nathan is about to do. Um, there is there's a part of my identity and my vocation as, as, as pastor that there are these moments where, where I have to take on a prophetic role. And, and when you hear the word prophecy or prophetic, I don't want you to think about future. It's not like I'm coming before you and I'm saying, hey, here's what God's going to do in in four years, here's the, uh, you know, I'm going to predict the end times here today. That's not what Nathan or any, most of the prophets are doing. The prophetic speech in the Old Testament, most of the time, is God raising up someone to help the people of God have a right ordering of the present. We've gotten completely clouded as to what's going on in our world and what's going on in our lives, and God raises these prophets up that, that, uncovers the different layers and speaks truth into our life. And, and I'll just say this by way of pastoral privilege, I guess. Uh, if, you, if you know a preacher that enjoys this, if you, if you know a preacher that, that just can't wait to stand up in front of a group of people and tell them about their sin, if you know somebody that enjoys this, 
I don't think what they're doing and what I've been called to do is the same thing. Because I hate this. I, 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 this, is, this is not the enjoyable part of the job. It's kind of like when you, you meet a soldier that can't wait to tell you about all the battles they fought. It's like, you know, the, the real heroes usually don't talk about that. And so this is an occupational hazard that we engage in every now and then. No, actually pretty regularly. And it's, it's not a fun part of the job. But here's Nathan that, that, goes into, that goes into the king's court and has a word for the king. Goes into the king's court and has a word for the king. Has this, this God-ordained mission to speak truth to power. And I love how Nathan goes about it. Let's, 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 let's visit that. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet, the pesky prophet, to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. This lamb shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. It was a pet. They loved this little ewe lamb. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are that man. You're the one, David. You did that. You took the only lamb Uriah had. You could have had your choice of, you have your choice of any lamb, but you took the one lamb Uriah had. You took advantage of this lamb and exploited this lamb and used your power and you made a mess of the whole situation. You are the man. And the epic failure is complete. And, and how many of us could read our own story into the life of David? I mean, what worship does for us is it shows us who God is and we see God in his perfection and his holiness and it's a mirror for our lives and we see our imperfection and we see our flaws and we see the prophetic word of God, not the prophet, but the prophetic word of God that is saying to us, you are the woman, you are the man, you are the one, you have sinned. There's really no other way to, to talk about this part of our lives, this thing that happens, we sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all had our David-like moment. We've all had our moment where we had power and levers and we pulled them to our own advantage. And we had things that we could do and stories that we could tell and lies that we could spin, and we did it for our own advantage. We made the choice and we sinned. 
We committed what John Wesley called a willful transaction of a known law of God. We knew what God's law was. We knew what God's plan for our life was. We knew these choices would lead to destruction, but we did them anyway. And so there are these individual acts of sin in our life. But what we're going to see in the life of David is God wants to do this even deeper work of not only uncovering these individual acts of sin in our life, but God wants to uncover what is it that makes us want to pull those levers and push those buttons. And this is what the Bible calls original sin. It's that delusion of our self-sovereignty. It is the heart that is completely turned in upon itself, that only thinks about our agenda, what we want, what benefits us the most. And we need to be confronted with both. We not only be, need to be confronted with the individual sin that we've committed and the mistakes that we've made, but we need to be confronted with what is it within me that makes me only think about myself? What is it that God might want to do to turn me away from focusing on what I want in my agenda and what's best for me? And what is it that God could do by his Holy Spirit to turn my heart outward towards the things of God and towards love for others? You know, we need Nathans in our lives. We need God's word in our life. We need people who reveal that to us. So when we're ready to be confronted by this, what is it that we do? Let's look at what Nathan, let's look at what King David did, actually. You know, we get, we get some hints as to how the story of David's going to play. I mean, when David was anointed as king, God said to Samuel the prophet, he said, remember Samuel, the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what made David king instead of Saul, you might recall that story, is that David had a, a heart that was responsive to the conviction of God, whereas Saul's heart was turned in a, a completely different way. I want us to compare those two figures because it'll help us understand what we're to do in this moment. Because you have Saul on the one hand. Remember him two weeks ago? He was the first king of Israel. He was described as a head taller than everyone else. He was handsome. He was used to, to, to having a certain amount of power and a certain amount of kind of instant, uh, 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 instant um, you know, just people just kind of gave him these leadership characteristics based on his physical appearance. And then David was the overlooked king. He was a shepherd. He was out in the field. When Samuel came to anoint a new king, they didn't even bother to call him in. They thought, there's no way this is going to be the guy. And so from the get-go, we're comparing and contrasting these two figures. But Saul messed up. Saul made a mistake. Saul was selfish. Why did God take the kingship away from Saul and give it to David, who ended up being selfish, who ended up making mistakes, who failed? who took advantage of Bathsheba, who killed Uriah? What was it about Saul that was different from David and vice versa? And what you see when Saul was confronted with his sin, as Samuel goes to Saul and says, hey, you're in trouble. You've done wrong. You see Saul instantly saying to Samuel, hey, well, let's make it right. What do we need to do? What levers can I pull? What buttons can I push? But when David is confronted with his sin, 
as you heard in worship, Psalm 51, David offers a psalm of confession. David offers a broken and a contrite spirit. And what Saul tries to do is, is, is more like what we try to do when we're confronted with our failure and our sin. Do you recognize this guy? Has anybody seen this movie? This is an iconic movie from like my childhood. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to give a lot of it away, but you've had 30-something years to see the movie. So I'm not going to feel guilty for any of this. Um, and it also pains me to say that this movie is 30-plus years old. Uh, and Matthew Broderick does not look like that anymore. Yeah, that's sad, too. But Fer Ferris Bueller decides to play hooky from school. And in the course of the day that he has off from school, he takes his dad's vintage red Ferrari. And here's a picture of that car. Classic, classic red Ferrari. And he and his friends, they go joyriding in this red Ferrari. And eventually they realize, whoa, someone's going to notice that we've had this car out because we've ran the odometer up so many miles. So we're going to be in big, big, big trouble when they figure out what we've done. And so they begin to decide, what can we do to make it right? How can we cover this up? How can we get by with this and make sure nobody notices? So they take the car back to the garage. They put it up on blocks. And I guess with that kind of Ferrari, as old as it was, I don't know how odometers work, but they thought, we'll just run it in reverse. It's up on blocks. We'll run it in reverse, and that'll roll back the odometer. And nobody will know that we took it out for a joyride. So at one point in the movie, you see the car just sitting there running in reverse up on blocks. But something happens. The car falls off the blocks. The wheels engage with the concrete of the garage. And then this happens. Yeah. Didn't end real well. Uh, the, uh, a situation that was really bad got really worse. Why? Because they tried to cover up their sin because they tried to cover up what they had done. And I feel like when we're confronted with our sin, we try to do the same thing. And the difference between Saul and David is this. David goes immediately to the Lord after Nathan confronts him, after Nathan says, you are the man, you've sinned, you've been selfish. And you've made a mess of your life and you've made a mess of the kingdom. David immediately goes to the Lord and says, have mercy on me, O God. I have sinned. I have, I have sinned. I have made a mess of things. Have mercy on me, O God. And we get to the end of Psalm 51. And instead of trying to fix things on his own, look what David says. My sacrifice, O God, it's a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart. Lord, you have said you will not despise these things. You take no delight in my sacrifice. If you did, I would bring it. You take no pleasure in my burnt offerings, these mechanisms, these religious mechanisms, these things that we try to do to atone for our sin. Lord, what you desire, more than our burnt offerings, more than our sacrifices, more than our perfect church attendance, or more than our religious things that we do, what you desire is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. 
and a heart that says, God, I have sinned. I have messed up royally. I am living in epic failure, and I can't fix this on my own. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. And David will go on in that prayer to say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Wash me away. Wash this sin away. Create in me a clean heart. Don't take your spirit away from me. The difference between David and Saul is that David confesses. And David comes to God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And in that brokenness, in that spirit, he receives the love and the grace and the mercy of God. You see, church, Jesus said the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. How long are we going to try to roll back the odometer of our life? How long do we think that's what's going to fix us? But what if we were truthful and honest in every broken relationship with our life? And what if we said to those that we've hurt, I messed up. I just messed up. I'm broken and I need help. And will you forgive me? And that begins with us recognizing that God already has. The cross, what Jesus did on the cross, it was God's way of saying, I love you just the way you are. And I want you to be restored. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to experience this love for yourself. And God wants to go about the, the, the work of restoring you to the person he's called you to be. And that's what Jesus was all about. You know, the gospel writer Matthew, he had a job to write a gospel to tell the story of Jesus. And he begins with a genealogy. And how many of us would say, um, well, hey, Matthew, um, there's some things in the genealogy of Jesus. You might just want to, like, breeze right through those. Let's not highlight those things. Um, you know, this is kind of a bad PR move. But look at Matthew 1.6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uh, do we want to highlight that? Is that the part of Jesus' story that we want to tell that's not really a pretty story? Matthew, could you do something different? Matthew says, you know, not only am I going to highlight that, I'm actually going to double down on all the flaws in Jesus' genealogy. I'm also going to remind people that his great, 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 great grandmother was a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. And we're going to talk about Uriah's wife, and we're going to talk about this episode in Genesis that I can't even get into today. But we're going to rightly tell the story of these flawed people. And that's going to point us to Jesus, who lived a perfect life. He lived the perfect life that we don't have the capacity to live. And if you want to cover up all those stories, then you miss what Jesus was all about. Because what Jesus was all about was, bring me your broken story. Bring me your life of epic failure. Bring me your mistake. And let me show you what God has done to forgive you. Let me stretch myself on a cross. Let me bleed on your behalf. Let me show you how much God loves you. And Paul describes it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still 
sinners. Every person in here that's a follower of Jesus, before you were a follower of Jesus, the Bible said you were a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But through Christ, we receive the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. And we've been given hope for a new life. And so I invite you, friend, to take an honest look at your life, to hear the word of God, to to hear the the stinging rebuke of, of Nathan the prophet saying, you are the man, you are the woman. And while that is painful, the other side of that is a God who loves you and a God who says, yes, you are the woman that I love. You are the man that I love. You are the man that I have given my one and only son to welcome and to forgive and to restore. And the way we receive this forgiveness of God is by coming to God just as David did and saying, have mercy upon me, O God. Lord, you don't desire the things I can do to fix myself. Lord, you desire this broken and this contrite spirit. And so I invite you to come to God today with a broken and a contrite spirit that says, Lord, I want to receive your grace and I want to receive your mercy today. Pastor Chad's going to sing. And as he sings this, this great hymn in the church that just exalts the love and the grace of God that we don't deserve, I would ask you to, to look inside yourself, to look at where you're at and to say, God, what is it you want to do in my life today? Maybe, maybe you have never received the forgiveness of God before. Today, for the first time, maybe you want to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And maybe you're, you've been a follower of Jesus, but you have drifted from a vibrant relationship in Christ. You have, you have allowed selfishness to guide your life and guide your decisions. And maybe you want to say, Lord, can we make a new start today? Can, can, we, can we just wipe the slate clean? Can you give me the wisdom and the power through your spirit to restore that which has been broken? Maybe you just want to make a new start today. Well, God's here. And he can do that. And it begins today.